Hello, and welcome to The Windwire, where industry leaders share the stories of transformative deals that shape their companies and careers. I'm Michael Katz, and we hope these stories will help empower you and your teams with inspiration and insights for success, no matter where you are on your journey. Let's get started. Our guest today is David Blake. David is the co-founder and CEO of Degreed, as well as the co-founder and CEO of Book Club. Hundreds of organizations and millions of people use Degreed to learn and get credit for all of their skills. And Book Club helps teams apply the world's best learnings from the world's best books. Additionally, he's co-author of the book, The Expertise Economy. He's an advisor to McKinsey and venture capital firms on the future of work, and a sought after expert on the topic of the future of work and learning. Speaking to companies such as Google, Deloitte, and Salesforce, and at conferences globally. The reason I'm so excited to have David on is because the story of how Degreed got put on the map, basically overnight, is one of the most inspiring sales stories I've heard in the past few years. And I'm really excited for you to hear it too. So without further ado, our interview with David Blake. David, welcome to the podcast. Appreciate it. It's good to be on here. Yeah. Super excited to talk today about a deal that really uh, made a mark on your career and your companies. Now, I think you and I originally met at dinner back in 2018, 2019 in Utah, and then I recently saw you at an event and it kind of sparked in my mind, this is someone who absolutely needs to come on here. He's had a, an incredibly storied journey and we can, we can dig into that in a little bit, including how you found yourself back at a company that you'd already left. But I think first, I really wanted to talk about that, that major deal. And so before we get into the details, I, I want you to set the scene here. I think your yep. deal is from 2015. Uh, talk about where you were as a company, how you found yourself there, what's happening right now, what are, what are you worried about, what are you trying to do? Sure. Yeah, very, very storied background is like a nice way of saying not very straight line, which is absolutely true. So yeah, I mean, we have that quintessential kind of hockey stick moment, that quintessential like do or die kind of breakthrough deal. So yeah, happy to talk about it. I think to set the stage a little bit before I just get straight into it, you know, I was a late 20 something when I started Degreed, was married with two kids. Um, wife was staying, uh, was home with the kids at, at that point. So, you know, we went from having one salary to zero. It was kind of an all in endeavor. This was the dream. This was the passion. This is what like, you know, Kind of my, my career to that point had just been clawing and scraping to earn the chance to take a swing, you know, at my dream. And we went all in. Uh, we were living in San Francisco. It's expensive. We had saved. I'd worked at actually a startup leading up to this. Um, and so as startups do, you know, they hadn't paid us much. So we hadn't been able to save much. So we didn't, you know, I mean, just runway was tight. Um, we had saved $13,000 rent in San Francisco was about 3000. You know, you can do the math. We ended up making it through the first year on credit card debt. You you'll hear this on occasion, but, but true of us. Um, I still have it. I'm, I'm actually going to go get it. I've, uh, I have a baseball card binder full of credit cards that, um, here, here it is. Like I just keep all ever since then I signed up for every credit card that came in the mail and that's how we survived the first year was, um, just signing up for credit cards and rollouts between, you know, from one credit card to the next. And 
um, the passion behind Agreed was how do we build a model of lifelong learning? So you ask someone, tell me about, you know, your education. They'll tell you where you went to, where they went to university or that they didn't go. And we're, I think that's totally normal. But, you know, if you ask someone, tell me about your health and they say, yeah, I ran a marathon 20 years ago. You know, we know that's an absurdity. But when someone says, yeah, I graduated from SMU 20 years ago, we don't even think anything of it. But, you know, it's equally absurd. And it reflects the fact that we can't answer for lifelong learning. So that was the passion. That's the mission behind Agreed. I was so passionate, you know, so eager to, to be working on that problem. We went all in, um, ran out of money, living on debt. And I was young. I was under-networked. I was under-resourced. I was new to Silicon Valley. I had never raised money before. I was sort of starting at the bottom. Had to pitch the, you know, associates and the analysts to, to work my way up and eventually got to partners. And sort of the long and short of that is VCs all told me no. I, I actually did get all the way through the process, pitch partners, pitch multiple partners, pitch the ICs, and, you know, like, hey, we're making our decision term sheets, and, and it just didn't come together. So, you know, it was just holding on. We ended up, you know, angels kind of came in, truly befitting of the name you know, just keeping us alive at the right moments. Um, Deborah Quazzo, who connected us, was uh, one of the earliest investors. Um, we ran out of money. I did cold outreach email to Mark Cuban. He came in and, and kept us alive. Um, and so it was just, just kind of clawing and scraping. And because this vision was lifelong learning, we wanted it to truly be lifelong. So we wanted the consumer to own their profile of learning. And if they owned it, they could take it with them between companies, between any learning provider. But the problem with consumer is, you know, it's hard to monetize. And, but we wanted to lay the foundation the right way. And we wanted the mission and the vision to be something we, we could, um, you know, really see fulfilled. And so we started with consumer and then made our way to enterprise. And 2012, we build the prototype, the MVP, assemble the early team. 2013, it launches to consumers. It starts to grow with consumers, but we're mo not monetizing yet. 2014, we start working on enterprise. And we get to sort of the back half of 2014. And we're out of money once again. It's time to raise a Series A. That's really hard to do as a three-year-old startup without revenue. And so that's the context leading up to kind of our big deal. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a, a lot of urgency in general <laughs> across the business. And naturally, uh, yeah, consumers who are going to be willing to make profiles about themselves learning wise are probably not the most eager to pay necessarily. So I'd imagine, yeah, it was a pretty high pressure situation. Everyone across the industry, whether it's a founder or your sales rep, you know, probably has some kind of urgency or struggle or desperation here. So yeah, it would be great just to walk through how the deal, as you say, came about and um, yeah. where did it arise from? What, what happened? Yeah. And I mean, um, Jason Lemkin he has a blog post. It's probably old now. I don't know. It's probably like five or six years old now, but it really resonated as, as I tell you about this deal. And he just said, you know, they, they like did a survey. What do all billion dollar SaaS companies have in common? And the punchline to their survey was one miracle. And he said, if your startup 
requires multiple miracles to work, it's just never going to happen. You just can't string multiple miracles together and, and sort of expect it to happen. And he said, if, if your startup requires zero miracles to actually be successful, that's too low a barrier to entry to likely make it to a billion um, in value. And so it was like, what do all billion dollar SaaS companies have in common? And it's one miracle. And so for us, I mean, this is like, this is our one miracle. Which, you know, so there's some, the short version, and then we can talk about some of the actual deal and so some of the subtleties of it. But there were three years coming up on three years into the journey, you know, assembled MVP, launched a consumer, started setting our eye on enterprise. There was a fork in the road. So we had this learning profile, this portable learning profile that was tracking all your learning, your YouTube and Khan Academy and Udemy and, and lynda.com back then, which is now LinkedIn Learning, um, Coursera, you know, um, all the articles and videos and podcasts that you're listening to is this profile that's aggregating your learning. And when we talked about how do we monetize and, and what do we do uh, as we go into enterprise, there was essentially a fork in the road, which was we can use this profile as a recruiting and hiring profile, or we can use this as a learning and development tool for inside companies with current employees. And we actually spent a good portion of that 2014 year exploring the recruiting and trying to make that work. And we were getting frustrated. It was just friction, friction, friction. You know, you're competing with big incumbents with LinkedIn, Stack Overflow and GitHub and sort of the vertical niche um, hiring platforms. Um, you know, what you know is part of the equation for who you hire, but it's not the entire equation. So we're kind of like a slice of the pie, not the whole pie. It was just, you know, we were really getting bogged down in this frustration and friction. And so then we started exploring the latter, which is learning and development. And that's kind of is when the magic happened. What we had built and the pressures that had come around um, for learning and development, it just really, it came together. But we were out of money. After three years, I would say we really didn't have any expectations as to, to how fast or, or what kind of deals would come together. Everything had been hard and slow to this point. And as we started selling, you know, our first deal in late 2014 was like a $10,000 contract. And then like, you know, two months later, our second contract was like a $12,000 contract with a used car um, like chain. And then our third contract, we landed an email chain. We had had one user at Bank of America sign up on our consumer platform. And I had reached out to the single you know, user at Bank of America that, hey, we're starting to work on an enterprise offering. Would you be interested in piloting this with your team? He was like, yeah, sure. At the time, this was kind of a middle manager deep inside of the, the organization at Bank of America. But he uses it. He loves it. He's like, hey, I'm happy to try and get you guys connected with the higher ups, you know, the people who could consider this. They would later show us this email thread, but it got passed around no fewer than like 35 times from this middle manager to make it to the right people inside of their enterprise L&D. But it landed on the right desk at the right time. 
the enterprise learning leaders took an interest. They reached out to us. And January 1st, 2015, on our three-year birthday, we signed a multi-million dollar contract with Bank of America for them to take degreed global to be used by all 300,000 plus employees. And this was such a big deal for them and can come back to the actual meeting because there's, there's kind of some just moments in the actual sales process in the meeting. But, and again, I, I was so new to this. I didn't know if this was like normal or not, but looking back on it, it was sort of like that, that movie moment. It was such a big deal for them. They were so excited about what we were doing. They flew us out to their building in Manhattan, in New York, on the top level. They had a black tie, like soiree, with us and their executives, with like fancy shit hors d'oeuvres getting passed around to introduce the startup that they are rolling out, the new tool, the new solution they're rolling out across their entire organization. And the CEO knew about it. The board knew about it. They had this black tie, like rollout. Little did I know that's not how every deal was going to go from, from there forward. I mean, that is amazing, obviously. And I don't know. I, I'd say I haven't really almost ever heard of situations like that. Obviously, like you said, there's definitely some points to kind of get into regarding meetings and different conversations and how you got to it. But one of the most interesting things here, I think, you mentioned the CEO knows about it. And most startups, most mature companies get a lot of questions about trustworthiness and security. Mm -hmm. And how do you sell an enterprise? How in the hell did you get past those barriers? Yeah, just first one of the funny sort of moments. <laughs> and then I'll tell you the, a little bit of the how. But, you know, yeah, I mean, serving a Fortune 20 financial service organization globally you know, in one of the most regulated industries. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's incredibly rigorous what you're going through in terms of procurement and infosec and, and all these things. And part of the procurement process, um, you know, just as, I mean, this, this wasn't even the part that was supposed to be challenging. They asked for your balance sheet, which um, we still hadn't closed our Series A. And so we were like holding off on sending this to them. And the deal was moving forward at the same time that we're trying to get our Series A financing closed. And our Series A financing, to our investors' credit, it ended up closing sort of about two months before the Bank of America deal would close. And so our Series A investors, they took the bet. They believed. They you know, signed up to back us before, before there was anything really proven, um, to their credit. And we had been holding off on this procurement step. And so when we finally got our series A closed, um, I actually didn't have like a proper, you know, balance sheet because we're a pre-revenue company. That isn't what our investors were investing on. And so we sent to procurement, the bank of America, a screenshot of our bank account with $7 million that had just landed in our bank account. We sent a screenshot of that instead of a balance sheet. And so when we get on the next call with procurement, they're like, you know, hey, you, you know, balance sheet, it, it looked like what you guys submitted was like a, a screenshot of, of your bank account. And I just said, yep. And I just, 
the biggest pregnant pause after that. I was not going to say anything else. And he was waiting for me to explain. He was waiting for me to like, and I just said nothing. I just said, yep. And this long, awkward pause. And he was like, well, that's odd, but um, okay. See what I can do there. And I mean, there was just a lot of those moments. And to frame sort of another moment, we'd had a couple of touch points, a lot of phone calls, but it culminated in a day and a half long sort of summit where we flew out to um, Charlotte headquarters and they convened their CHRO and their CLO and, and about, I don't know, sort of an additional 20 people across the learning organization. We, we were like 18 employees total. And so we flew out there with like 12 of us, which is like, you know, so show up with nearly the entire company. Um, just so we can look like we're bigger than we really are. Looking big. Um, you know, fill the seats. And, you know, as a reminder, we are just holding on by the skin of our teeth, pre-revenue, just surviving. It's been tough. It's been brutal. And here we are in the headquarters of Bank of America with their C-suite and talking about what we knew was, was we didn't have the number in this moment, but we knew it would be sort of millions of dollars. And a day and a half, and at the end of it, the final hour, so this is the like culminating final hour of the meeting, the CLO gets up in front of us and, you know, the camaraderie was, was high, the energy was good and positive. And he gets up and he thinks he's delivering the best news in the world to us. He knew that a deal like this was a big deal for us. But he gets up in front and he says, you know, hey, we are so excited. We are excited to move forward with you, but we're Bank of America, we're highly regulated, we have some considerations. And essentially then gave us a list of kind of like five things we would have to do, build into the product if we were going to get the deal. And then there was sort of like four things we had to take out of our product if we were going to get the deal. And this is a little bit of a nuance of our industry, but enterprise corporate learning historically has been serviced by a piece of technology called the LMS, learning management software. And this is the piece of software you're in when you're doing your compliance training. So when you have to go take sexual harassment training, you know, every year, you are taking that course in a piece of software called the LMS. And what we were doing was trying to build a new category of software around lifelong learning. Not the stuff you have to learn, but the stuff you want to learn. Not the stuff that the law says you have to do to stay in compliance, but the stuff you want to learn to meet your goals and to be better at your job and to advance your career. And so we were adjacent to this legacy piece of software, but we really were trying to envision something new. And so when they got up in front of us, those lists of do's and don'ts, they're like, this is, you know, we're so excited. We're so excited to work with you. He thinks he's Santa Claus delivering the best news ever. But he says, you know, you've got to do these five things and you can't do these four things. And essentially what it added up to was a description of an LMS. And that wasn't what we were about. And this is, you know, I'd, I'd been warned of these moments of like, big enterprise can take, take over a small company. Meeting their needs, servicing a big complex organization can just suffocate your roadmap, your vision, 
your identity and you just get smothered by the complexity of big enterprise. And here we were, a sub 20 person startup just holding on. And I didn't know this was coming. They had not given us clues that they were going to stipulate all of these things. And so I wasn't ready for it, but here we are in this moment, three years to get to revenue. This is a deal that would absolutely make the company and help us break through. And it's ours if only we just say yes. But those stipulations, you know, were going to turn us into something we didn't want to be. And so like live in the, in the moment, all of a sudden he kind of stops talking and he's looking at me, expecting me to just be equally excited. And I kind of look at my team and they all know exactly what I'm thinking. They know what those stipulations mean. They know it's not what our vision and our mission statements align to. And they all have this nervous look on their face because they're like, is Dave going to walk away from this deal? Is, or is Dave going to say yes to this deal and, and we've sold our kind of birthright? And I looked back at them and, you know, it's kind of the Simon Sinek, I guess, is what ran through my head, you know, like your why, start with why. And I said, look, first, let's acknowledge it's crazy that we're even here. It's crazy that Bank of America wants to work with a teeny startup on your global learning. But the reason why we're here is because our vision of the future has resonated with you. So let's just acknowledge it's crazy, but we're here because you know what we're saying has some merit. And everything you just stipulated, even if I wanted a yes, which I do, I can't. Because I know that what you just stipulated, what does that sound like? That sounds just like your LMS. And you already have one of those, and you still have these problems and these challenges. So if we're going to have any chance at delivering different results for you, you know that you're going to have to let us do things differently. So even if I wanted to say yes to you, which I do, I'm not going to. So it's really going to come down to whether or not you all are willing to really go on the journey with us of doing things differently. And I left it at that. And he was absolutely not expecting that. He, he thought he was, again, Santa Claus awarding us the biggest lottery ticket, which he was. He was not expecting to you know, be defied in his, what he perceived to be simple sort of you know, requests relative to the size of this contract and who they are in the world. And he was taken a little bit aback, put on his heels, and he kind of looked to you know, the CHRO who was there in the room. He looked to kind of his number two learning leader. And they didn't say anything. They just kind of like looked at each other and shrugged their shoulders and looked back at him. And he looked at us and he was like, you know what? You're right. You're absolutely right. And he was like, okay, we'll do it your way. And like, that was it. And so it was this moment of kind of sticking to like our belief and our vision of what we were trying to build, holding to the conviction that it really was what had got us to the table to give up, 
you know, in that moment wouldn't have set us or them up for success, sort of holding to your conviction, holding to your guns, and ultimately having that be seen and respected. And so how we got through all the crazy procurement moments was in many ways because Bank of America, like deliberately and intentionally had decided for themselves, we're going to have to act and operate differently. We're going to have to meet the future in this moment and change some of our business practices if we really are going to look different in the future. We were this partner that they were willing to kind of really go the extra mile to understand and to preserve and hold on to the model. Well, of course, we did have to meet some true boundaries of what sort of the regulations entail for them. And, and then from there, and so one of the other really unique things about Degreed is where the, I think I've never had anyone give me any other um, second company. So I, if there is someone I'm not aware, I think we're the only enterprise SaaS company in the world where employees own their data. And like, that's pretty groundbreaking. Like that is truly anomalous. We're the only enterprise SaaS company in the world where the employee owns their data. And we did that so that it could be lifelong, so it could be portable, so that when you leave Bank of America or Citibank or HSBC, your learning profile and your learning data can go with you forward. And like getting that through info security also took, you know, a huge amount of just understanding and consideration and a willingness to rewrite their policy of their, their SaaS master service agreements. And it all happened because of sort of our, our conviction and, and our point of view. And of course, the very fact that the customer has absolutely zero incentive and actually actively probably is like, I don't even want to think about this employee leaving. Uh, and you're telling me I have to care about them having job yep. mobility. Yeah. Uh, that, that question comes up a lot in learning, which is like, you know, if we upskill this employee, isn't that just enabling them to, to go somewhere else? And it's, there's a, an old adage in our industry, which is, what if you train them and leave, but what if you don't and they stay? Great companies at some point get around that corner and just realize they've got to be good to their people, you know, sort of full stop. But true, true. Yeah. Makes sense. I mean, it, it's funny. It's obviously this watershed moment, and it's really unique in a lot of ways of having that size of that step up from very little to honestly a size that a lot of companies never even get to who are successful companies. It seems crazy in your eyes, and obviously it is hyperbolic in a certain way, but every single person who's selling anything inherently has to go through a little bit of what you're talking about, which is evangelizing someone to do anything to do something different and to visualize a future, even if it's just a couple little gadgets. And so I think it's interesting. You mentioned that obviously it took a lot of consensus in getting them to that future. How did you navigate the company and navigate those people to start to implant that idea in their heads that it was worth it to even get on board with something that wasn't inside their LMS as an example? What do you think you said that Maybe you even took into kind of how you worked with future folks and how you evangelized in those places. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there is an enormous amount of just like luck involved as well. I mean, I do believe you make your luck. I was doing the outreach. I noticed, you know, made the early connection to this Bank of America employee, established a relationship, did a pilot, 
like you make your luck, but there was a ton of luck involved, which is, you know, this email thread, it made it through. There was a luck, it landed on the desk of someone who independently had really come to envision sort of this future of lifelong learning themselves. So we got super lucky, which is we, we had this champion who we didn't have to kind of sell the vision to. They had already independently come to a very similar vision. And so that like simpatico meeting of the mind. But from there, so having a good champion made all the difference. Um, the right confluence of, you know, they had enough influence inside of the org to bring people to the table. I mean, a lot really does have to happen for a deal like that to come together and to work. I had come up through product and marketing and finance and operations. But, you know, what I hadn't done in my career to that point was sales. And so a lot of these like late stage, big enterprise sales process and, and journey and, and tactics, that was all new to me. And I remember getting exposed to early on the challenger sale, you know, and that really fit well with kind of what we were doing, which was kind of selling a new way of doing things, a vision of the future, a better way. And, you know, and it, even it shows up in that story, which is this kind of willingness to push back and to challenge the, the client on kind of their philosophy and their thinking. And so, I mean, just encountering the right book at the right moment makes all the difference. And, and so, you know, hard work, yes, but I'm also really grateful for all the kind of all the things that had to come together to, to make that quote unquote miracle happen for us. Yeah. Yeah. And again, clearly, like you said, everybody needs that one miracle. And I'm sure, you know, to be honest with you, I'm sure, you know, even though you obviously had to carry the entire team with you to seem big. <laughs> It was probably pretty nice for everyone to also feel like they were there in their room actually seeing that success. Well, and it became and still is to this day. You know, here I am on this podcast telling the story to you still now all these years later. Like it became company lore. The fact that we are a mission-driven organization, it was there, you know, imprinted into the organization in this moment that others witnessed and that made all the difference. And having Having those kind of moments, you kind of would never wish these crazy moments on anyone, but they're the ones that end up becoming the stories that get told and retold inside of an organization. Yeah. And, and honestly, a point of learning for mm-hmm. those folks too. So clearly everyone is realizing, yeah, a customer might be pushing back, but we need to stay true to our vision. And I guess just to transition really quickly, obviously you came back on as CEO of Degreed recently, you have had a really interesting founding journey and have always been kind of passionate about this specific problem space. I think it would be helpful just to even briefly talk through that journey from maybe even 2012 onward of leaving, coming back, and kind of what inspires you so much about sure. that vision. Yeah, the, the broad brushstrokes, um, the education bug bit when I sat for the ACT as a high school student and just was kind of blown away that this is how the adults of the world all got together and decided they were going to sort the 17 year olds in and out of their future. And I just thought that's crazy. And that was kind of the, the little pebble in the shoe, the little burr under the saddle, the little piece of sand in the gears that just kind of never went away. And I started studying about 
our systems of education and history of education and the problems in education and it snowballed and it became this passion and became this obsession. And so from there, like many, I didn't really know how to make a career out of it. I didn't want to be a teacher. I was really passionate about once you step out of the classroom, what are the issues that the system is facing? And that's not like a career path that is maybe cleanly or clearly laid out. Econ undergrad, went into management consulting, found an opportunity to break into ed tech. I'm an elder millennial, so this confluence of the internet and tech startups and social media was really just emerging. This is when Facebook was still .edu, email addresses only. But I'm able to break into one of the, at the time, the only ed tech companies. I mean, ed tech wasn't really properly a category yet, but it was a startup. Its motto was students are more than a test score about giving students holistic representation in college admissions. Did that for three years. It moved us to Silicon Valley. I consulted for a university startup for a period of time and then started Degreed. Led that for six and a half years as CEO. Stepped down to do political organizing, which you'll have to do a different podcast to get me talking about political organizing and, and some of what's happening in American democracy. But felt passionate about that, stepped away, did a political organizing, clipboard in hand, two years across America, and then came back to the passion of education and started a venture studio called The Future of Work Studios, launched two operating businesses. One is called Learn In, one is called Book Club. And then last year in summer of 2022, Degreed acquired Learn In and brought me back as the CEO of the combined entity. And so I suppose at this point, technically qualify as a serial entrepreneur, a serial founder. But in many ways, it's all to me, a continuation of the same journey. My, my life work is, is dedicated to this passion of building a model of lifelong learning and skills-based learning, but also the other kinds of learning. And that's where a book club came in, which is how do we do the kind of learning that can challenge someone's worldview? And what is the type of education that can create more empathetic, you know, humans? And what's the kind of education that can help you step into someone's shoes and walk in their shoes for a mile? And the power of great literature is just one of the best things we've invented as humans to do that. And so I'm passionate about the career side of education. I'm passionate about the, the personal self-development, self-fulfillment side of education. Um, I'm ultimately passionate about all education. We, we started a micro school here in Bountiful, Utah. My, my wife works in education. So truly, truly a passion. I'm excited to be once again at Degreed, now at global scale. That's super cool. That's the privilege of a lifetime when you, when you build something and sort of overnight, it's being used by millions of people across the globe. That's a super cool kind of moment in the journey and as an entrepreneur. But, you know, still more problems to solve in education. So I, I imagine I'll be, you know, working at this for decades yet. And hopefully till I die. Yeah. Well, and I do recommend that uh, everyone check out David Blake, vice president. I don't know <laughs> what it is to search for, but yeah. yes, that is another, it's a great rabbit hole to go down. Vice.run is the website for the, for the political organizing. <laughs> I love nope. it. I love it. Hey, you really can't get enough of uh, starting businesses, starting really anything. But uh I, I talked a bit to uh, Kat Kennedy, who was the president of Degreed and uh, was hand in hand with you from those earliest, earliest days. And uh, one thing that she mentioned was your introspection and your ability to change perspectives, your strong opinions, but you're willing to change them. Are there any kind of particularly memorable times throughout that 
that journey where you did have a strong belief or you took some of that feedback from other folks internally or externally and, uh, and changed your opinion? Um, you know, Kat is ultimately, she outlasted both co-founders in terms of original tenure on the job. Of course, I'm back now and adding a couple more years, but um, the, the real torchbearer and deserves so much of the credit for the success of Degreed in, in these latter years. She's referencing Eric Sharp, my co-founder, had a principle, strong opinions weekly held. I'm really grateful for him and for that kind of principle that he added to the canon at Degreed. I'd say, yeah, stepping back, I mean, one of my most adamant sort of things early on was um, if we're ever going to have the ability to answer for education in a universal way, uh, it's, it's going to have to be just that. It's going to have to be universal. It's part of the power of the college degree, which is it's universal across every, literally every country in the world uses the college degree in more or less the same way. It is a universal global standard. But we don't have that same language or the same standard for skills. So if I tell you I'm a level, you know, nine in Microsoft Excel, what does that mean? We just don't have that language. And so early on, one of our uncompromising principles was we established a taxonomy for skills. We established a leveling system for skills. And we actually required all of our clients to adopt those standards. And the hope was, is that in so doing, it would become interoperable. That being a level four at international tax at Bank of America would be the same as being a level four in, in international tax at KPMG, which would be the same as being a level four in international tax at, you know, Visa, which would be the same as that MasterCard would be the same at Prudential would be the same at HSBC. To see that vision, I felt like I had to be uncompromising. And... So we never compromised on that principle. And it caused a lot of friction in sales deals. These are big enterprise organizations. They've spent millions of dollars with Deloitte and Accenture coming up with skill taxonomies and their own skill language. And here we are unrelenting, telling them that they have to adopt ours. I came back to Degreed as CEO last year. And one of the first things I did was abandon that, that point of view, that philosophy. Um, and I do think it does come down to this, you know, can you be strong in your convictions, hold on to your point of view, but you also have to see the world and be willing to move as the world does. And in the time I had left to greet and come back, the world got noisy faster than Degreed was able to set a standard. And so we had the foundations of a standard, but in those years that I had stepped away, you know, now Workday has skill taxonomy and, and language and leveling and SAP and IBM and, and all of the sort of HR solutions, your applicant tracking systems and your performance management systems and your mobility systems. Now there's too many taxonomies in the world and the noise grew faster than our ability to set the standard. And so in coming back, we switched strategies to how do we make all of these different taxonomies interoperable? And how do we normalize them? And so that's one kind of more recent, fairly big area where I was once upon a time really dogmatic and trying to, in my convictions, hold a line where in the wisdom of, of strong opinions weekly held have changed how we're attacking the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not easy, right? To your point, how do you eventually acknowledge that the, the world has changed, even though, of course, you know, logically that 
your opinions have gotten you to where you are today and have gotten to read to where, you know, got to. But yeah, I mean, in that vein, clearly you are someone with strong opinions. It's obviously a, a challenging time of change for a lot of folks right now. What do you hear being talked about out there, being used as dogma right now that you think people are getting wrong? What is something that's getting bandied about at a different company where you think people are a little too, too focused on it or things have changed? You know, I think the Kipling poem, if it talks about both triumph and disaster as imposters. And I think we just have come out of a period 20, the back half of like 2020, the front half of 2021, where, you know, startups, I mean, it reached its peak frenzy. It really was peak frenzy. The, the ability to raise capital, the valuations, the multiples. And now we're in this period where a majority of tech companies have had to do layoff. Valuations have contracted. The market is recessionary and inflationary and getting harder to sell into. And I think if there's maybe a, to, to go to that, you know, both success and disaster are, are both imposters. Like none of us were as, you know, smart, intelligent and successful as 2020 and 2021, you know, tried to make us think and believe we were. And I think very quickly, we'll also appreciate the back half of 2022 and, and 2023, you know, neither are sort of these downward pressures, the actual reality. And I think if you can just kind of, you know, keep your head about you when sort of the good times are there and, you know, keep your head about you when, when the tough times and the tough moments come, um, you know, I think that's a lot of what it takes to, uh, what it is to be a good entrepreneur. Well, I think even to kind of summarize that right there is obviously so much, you know, even thinking about that perspective of we weren't as smart as we thought we were either. There's a, like a perspective right now that everyone's lazy or everyone sucks and they're not trying hard or whatever it is. And therefore there's that where you're actually, that's almost taking a little bit of a backwards looking perspective mm -hmm. too far of saying, oh, things have changed oh, for the negative, but it's because it's everyone's fault where maybe neither is. And so that's a, uh, yeah, it's interesting. The, in that uh, sense. The, and then the politician in me would say that's true of a lot of our our collective narratives at the moment, which is the all or nothings. You know, they're the enemy. We're the good guy. We've gotten so hyperbolic and extreme and binary. And I think all of us can appreciate uh, that the truth is much more middled and nuanced and and complicated than then we've allowed kind of the conversations to, to become. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. In the spirit of kind of learning from others, is there one or two people, leaders, peers that, you know, you can identify that have had the most impact on you throughout your career so far and, and yeah. why? Um, and Wayne was the CEO of that first ed tech startup. I repeat adages and, and wisdom that she taught me every week as my life to be honest, manage to the constraint, how quickly the constraint changes is how good of a job you're doing at management. I repeat that almost daily. It's my motto that, that keeps me oriented as an entrepreneur. You were talking about, you know, you had the ability to, to have strong convictions and stick to them. I, I think I learned early from my actually younger brother who was and is a big impact social entrepreneur and, and now an impact investor. I saw him 
affect and change the world for good as, as even a teenager. And it just in, imbued in me the ability to believe that we all can make a difference. And finally, kind of my, uh, to tie it out again, to connect it to the politics, JFK has always just been a, a personal hero. And the, uh, not because it is easy, but because it is hard, has been something I hold on to tight as the journey gets tough. Yeah, I mean, that's a wealth of folks. And I think people really get a lot of value from kind of hearing a lot of your perspective. Of course, I think you have a lot of perspectives on a lot of things. We could spend three hours doing this if we wanted, but I really appreciate your time, yeah. David. Appreciate the questions and the conversation. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on another episode of The Windwire. We hope you enjoyed David's story as much as we did. It's truly a one of one event and an inspiration to stick to your convictions in the face of pressure. I know it inspired me. If you liked today's episode, we'd appreciate if you could rate us and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. It helps others discover the show and join our growing community. We'd also love to connect with you. Our info is in the show notes, including our show email, winwirepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to get your feedback and future episode requests. You can see all episodes at thewinwire.com and on your favorite podcast player. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Michael Katz, and this is The Winwire.